Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. You have to get to a certain stage of superstardom before you can start rating entire countries out of ten. And not come across as a little bit, I don't know, arrogant. Well, or, well I, I do it all the time. Do people get offended by that? As I'm leaving air, uh, airports, <laughs> I just go through security baggage. I'm going to turn. I'm going to turn to, you know, France. Four out of ten. I'm sorry. That's just how I feel. Seven is what Usain Bolt gave Russia. He docked those three marks almost entirely based on his impression that Russians don't smile a lot. Ken didn't have much to say about the various debates that were going on elsewhere amongst other athletes. But if you don't smile, Usain Bolt is not going to give you ten out of ten. Well, I think Usain Bolt's impression is accurate. I was looking at some maps recently on the Washington Post, Owen, and it, uh, one of the maps, it was like 40 maps that explained the world. Uh, and one of them was uh, the extent to which people are openly emotional, with color, countries colored in, shaded in different um, colors, depending on how openly emotional their people were. Ireland, an angry red color, indicating extreme emotionality. Mm. Russia, a deep blue indicating... Uh, like the frozen tundra. Exactly. Emotional reticence. Any reason to dock three marks for that, though? Maybe one mark? Or some would say, actually, that sort of emotional reticence should get you extra marks. Maybe if we had some of that emotional reticence, Ken, as a country... We wouldn't be in the best world. <laughs> well, I'm sure Yelena Isambayeva would, would say that, you know, I'm sorry, but we are Russians. Maybe we're a little bit different here. And there's nothing wrong with that, because this is our country, and while you're here... Respect us. Respect our uh, expressionless, uh, stony uh, features. Bolt's final message is similar, Murph, to, again, what you generally say when you leave countries. Hey, Russia, it's Usain Bolt. Came here, dominated. Now I'm leaving. <laughs> That's pretty yeah. much what Julius Caesar said. That was, I mean, he was the On first Instagram. person. Um, no, he wrote, didn't he write it in his, in his annals or whatever? Veni, Vidi, Vici. That was his, uh, I came, I saw, I conquered. That was his um, Impressions of gold, wasn't it? Something like that. I think he was. I think he was talking about Britain, and he was boasting a little bit because I think what actually had happened was that he had sort of crossed crossed the uh, pond 
walked around for a bit and then got back in the boat and gone home. <laughs> but that, that was enough. As far as anyone at home was concerned, he'd pretty much conquered the whole place. It's like buying your holiday souvenir presents in Dublin Airport, basically. <laughs> Essentially. But, you know, Bolt, I suppose, is, is, um, is following the best there. Sean Kelly was the world's number one ranked cyclist for five years. We're going to talk to him in studio about his autobiography, which is just out. A little bit about doping in the sport, the relationships between the Irish riders then and now. His rivalry, Stephen Roach, is actually one of the most interesting parts of the book. It's something that both men have obviously talked about quite a lot in the past, but generally in very nice terms. Oh, we were great. No, I wasn't jealous of him. No, we all got on great. In this case... One of the earliest mentions of Stephen Roach, possibly the first mention, is when Roach wins, could have been Paris and Nice. It was one of the, it was a big race anyway at the time in the early eighties, and Kelly says he parked his tank on my lawn. <laughs> and after that, there's loads of these references. I wanted to bury him, all these kind of mm. stuff, which is all. Yeah, you look at it now, of course, with hindsight, and they they were friends while also being very keen rivals. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I was just thinking actually that the the best uh, reference point we have for this now is probably the Munster Leinster. Rugby rivalry, hmm. where players can obviously have an awful lot of antipathy to each other when they're playing for their province and yet come together and play for Ireland yeah. and for it not to well, be a big thing, problem. The thing with Kelly and Roach is that they didn't ride against each other that often. As in, they did, of course, they're in the same races, but oftentimes a race will be better suited to one of them or just generally there be an, an unwritten understanding maybe that it's better for them not to attack each other at certain times. But there were some races such as Paris-Nice, which they dominated between them during the 1980s, which suited both of them quite well. And they both felt they should be winning every year. So those were the kind of battlegrounds, largely. And also the Nissan Classics in the 1980s, when there were thousands of people all around the country in Ireland watching them. And uh, maybe it was sort of an exhibition feel to that. I can't, I was quite young at the time, but I do remember it just being this exciting thing that was going on. But those guys were racing to win those races very much as well. So there's a lot of that. Now, Roach obviously won a lot in 1987, which wasn't a good year for Sean Kelly. But check this out. This is the World Championship, which completed Roach's incredible treble. This is post-race interview, right? See if you can identify the man asking the questions. But also do note Roach's slightly condescending attitude towards not towards Kelly, but towards the lesser talented teammates. And also another great feature of today was the way the Irish team actually worked. I mean, it wasn't just yourself and Sean. Martin no. rode very well. Paul Kimmich Martin, finished in that group yeah. too also. Martin and Paul rode extremely well. Like they're, they're limited as regards the final, but they did their best all the way through. Even Paul, like, Paul was hanging around the back and said to Paul, come to the front for the morale. And they rode, uh, they rode incredibly like when, when the, the groups were away. Paul was always there in the front to take us to the front and uh, Martin also rode behind the, the small group of Argentine so you know it was, uh, we were only four maybe or five in the, in the peloton but it's a strong five Paul was at the back and I said come to the front come on Paul, Paul book up your ideas <laughs> yeah. quite similar to a comment Roach made this year when he was talking about Paul Kimmich saying oh look I've apologised to Paul over the whole book thing I didn't take it too well at the time when he wrote Rough Ride but I've said Paul I didn't know what was going on you're writing this is this year you're riding in the back of the peloton. You can see what's going on ahead <laughs> of you. I'm riding in the front with wing mirrors. I don't know what's going on in the middle. Too far ahead. To by, by the way, Owen, you never identified who it I was. I was going to come around to that, Ken. Oh, okay. just, I'm trying to weave all this together. No, oh, I see. Just right, sorry. Give me some space, I assumed man. you'd just forgotten. So. Pat McQuaid. Pat our, McQuaid our leader, our Pat great McQuaid cycling leader. That was Pat McQuaid. He was the co-commentator. Did quite a good job as co-commentator, Ken. Mm. And very confident and competent post-race interviewer. How does it feel, Owen? that Pat McQuaid is a better journalist than you and a much better sports administrator. I <laughs> uh, must burn. And certainly a better sportsman. Yes. Murph, mm-hmm. Limerick. We're, go- we're going to talk to Sean Kelly later on, have a good long chat with him. Going to be in studio. But Limerick, the 
common perception might be overstating it, but the bubble was burst. The bubble was burst. They no got too hard. We, we talked last week on the show about how the Limerick leader devoted ninety five percent of their front page last week to the All Ireland hurling semi final. Five percent being some advertising. Clare champion. 0% on the front of their page. Went but bizarrely with news stories. So essentially, the it's the Limerick leader's fault that they lost the game, if that's the point of it. <laughs> Have you seen the um, more recent front pages? What's the ratio like this week? We haven't seen them yet, anyway. Um, people do say, you know, the hype, you know, the hype got to Limerick and all the rest. I, I just think it's an interesting topic of conversation because really, can you uh, attribute a team performance as flat as Limerick's to hype? I mean, I, I don't think that you can. And I, mean, I think that. Uh, we, I, I'm looking forward to discussing actually with Derek Ling and with Nick mm. English a little later on just to what extent hype can get to players uh, you know I'm sure there are plenty of players who see all of the excitement around the county and say this is it this is what you know we were born to do born to experience this is absolutely brilliant and then I'm sure there are a few that are kind of shrinking into themselves with every passing day so I mean I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's interesting that uh, a county build, builds itself up into a wealth of excitement like Limerick did and then you know much as even maybe the Euro 2012 angle can be played here in that we imme- they immediately descend into self-loathing you know it's, it's our fault the hype that's why it's all our fault why do we do that don't forget to check out Second Captain's Football which we'll have out for you later on today but we're going to start with the Gaelic football because the first of the All-Ireland semis is on next Sunday and I don't know Murph is paranoia creeping into one of the counties involved well yeah and it's not Mayo <laughs> uh, which uh, I believe we should uh, uh, make clear right from the very start. Well, I mean, paranoia maybe is, is stretching it slightly, but the build-up has been dominated very much by the Sean Kavanagh rugby tackle against Monaghan, the outrageous fallout to that, and then really Tyrone's response to it. Because I think if Tyrone had, had let sleeping dogs lie, then I think that the the news agenda would naturally have moved on. And maybe, you know, in the run-up to the game on television, we might have heard bits and pieces of it. But at that stage, it actually doesn't matter what mm. these people say, you know. Uh, but Tyrone had their press night last week and they released a fact sheet where they kind of went in, very much went on the offensive about Tyrone's fouling record, the fact that Tyrone had been um, more fouled against than, fa- than had fouled over the course of the league and championship. When, you know... Toronto obviously have a winning record in the league and a winning record in the championship, so they have the ball more often, so they're probably not going to be fouling as often because they have the blooming ball so much, you know. So, I mean, I, it, I don't think it, it achieved anything, and to be honest, it probably weakened their position quite a bit, to be honest. Maliki Clerken, you were at that press night. Yeah. What did you make of the atmosphere there? Is this a case of circling the wagons and trying to just trying to maybe get the whole siege mentality going that we hear so much about in sport, or were they genu- genuinely incredibly angry, angry enough that they decided to produce this document? No, no, they were, certainly weren't incredibly angry. Um, Tyrone's uh, press nights are, uh, you know, they're a lesson to uh, counties everywhere. Um, they, uh, they're they incredibly welcoming uh, to their big, uh, they have a new centre of excellence up uh, in Garvahi. Uh, they're incredibly welcoming and they're incredibly open. Um, they brought us all into a room beforehand and said, lads, you have the run of the place, you can interview people wherever you want, wherever you want to sit them down. And and they said this quite pointedly, you can ask whatever you like. <laughs> and so we were left in sort of no doubt what, what we were able to ask. And it was actually, it was the night after Conor Gormley had received his proposed one-match ban, which was then subsequently 
uh, repealed uh, the following day, the Thursday. Um, and so obviously we were going to ask about that and we were going to talk to Mickey Hart about that and to talk about in general, you know, the, the atmosphere around them and the atmosphere um, around what people think of Tyrone and what their, you know, the the image that they project. And halfway through it, um, Damien Harvey, who who was the PRO, he's not the PRO now, uh, Union Lindsay is, but he handed out uh, the fact sheet that, that Murph is talking yeah. about there. And, um, you know, I, I don't know, Murph, if, if I agree that it weakens their position. Um, I'm not sure that they have any particular position, but I don't think that it has done them an awful lot of harm. But I do think that it's kind of silly. To yeah. be honest, I, I think yeah, well, that's, that's the yeah, I, I've that's, been agreeing with you that's there, the yeah. main thing. I, I mean, uh, I saw somebody sort of say on Twitter uh, the the old political maxim: if you're explaining, you're losing, and that's the thing. They, there was no need for them to produce. I know that they sort of felt obviously they felt that Joe Brawley went over the top, but I think most right thinking people think that Joe Brawley went over the top, and more to the point, most right thinking people had moved on two days later, yeah. like. Who cares that he went over the top? He, he subsequently apologised to Sean Kavanagh for the crack about forgetting about him as a man. And so, you know, let's all move on. And um, I thought the fact sheet was, was kind of silly, but then, you know, it's great for us. We get to uh, have fun with it. Enda McGinley, three-time All-Ireland winner with, winner with Tyrone, I should say, is listening to this conversation. And I don't know, as a player, would you be happy enough to stay away from all of this and not hear anything about fact sheets or anything for that matter, just get on with playing the game itself. Yeah, I think the players, from from a player's point of view, they will be just bursting to get out of this at this game. Like after the whole weekend of the quarterfinals and after all that happened, uh, they would have been just buzzing to get at the the Ireland semi final. So certainly, the fact sheet and things like that is. It's something that they're not too perturbed about. In fact, if anyone from the player point of view, they would like the whole sense of a vendetta against them to continue mm. on, and because that suits from a from a from your own point of view and from motivation and all of that, it's a fantastic place to be. I think it's just an I think it's I think it's an Irish man's mentality to 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 love this sense that you're that you're that you're you're sort of the 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 body and you're fighting against this. So. Look, I think from a drone point of view, they're in a great place for this for this semi-final. The whole thing about the the vendetta against them or this campaign against them, uh, I think there's 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 something to it. For me, the the coverage has been too one-sided. Uh, so that that sense of paranoia that Cameron was talking about, I think there, that is there. But if you look at the Evans, it's it's very hard. To to not agree that there's there's something there like the coverage of the quarterfinals, the only negative incidents picked out was the thrown incidents, and there was several other significant things that happened I think that were just people, completely yeah, yeah. covered over. You know, yeah, I know that point has been made. I think subsequent to that, maybe some of those incidents were alluded to by some commentators. So there is actually a, well, you would feel that it, there has been unfair coverage of Tyrone over the last couple of weeks. I like my problem wouldn't be with Brawley. Like Brawley, we all know Brawley's an idiot, and I know Brawley well. <laughs> and he he was texting me afterwards, and I met him again at the weekend. And like I, I was saying, to him I don't have a problem with him going off on one. I am slightly suspicious. It all looks as if he just went off on one. For me, as a barrister, barristers are trained to hold their cool and to know exactly what they're saying and to choose the right words. So 
I am always suspicious of this sort of thing that Joe's trying to put out that he just lost it, and it's one of them things. I, Joe's Joe's a shrewd boy, and I'd, I would I would always take a everything he says with a pinch of salt. But I don't have a problem with Joe saying what he does. Look, that's their intention. My problem would be with the broadcaster sort of very much standing over it and supporting it as good punditry. And Joe talked about the cynical football as a very bad trend that has come into the game. Well, for me, a worse trend is the the sort of the targeted abuse of individuals or the lectures that have been given from studios this year against people that can't really have the opportunity to defend themselves. And it seems to be being encouraged. There's three or four times this year that there's been significant statements being made in studios, uh, very strong statements against individuals. Uh, and for me, that that's annoying. And Tyrone certainly have had the brunt of that over, over the years without much attention on the good things that we do. Malachi, you made the point in your piece today that, okay, some pundits have been having a go at people over the course of the year, but that when you're involved in sport, well, even if you don't think it's the right thing to hear, you shouldn't take it too seriously. You maybe think that the people who have been, well, targeted is the word that Enda uses there, should let it wash over them a little bit more. Yeah, it's funny. And, and okay, it's easy for me to say because, you know, the, <laughs> I'm not the one being targeted. But I even thought this at the start of the year. I mean, he was even the, the wasn't it the second show of the year that Eamon O'Hara had, yeah. had the go at Kevin Walsh? <laughs> and the next day on the 6-1 News... Um, Marty Morrissey had, I can't remember whether it was the Sligo chairman or the Sligo secretary, but certainly somebody in officialdom from Sligo, standing by a pitch with goalposts in the background going, we all stand four square behind Kevin Walsh. And you're going, hang on, that was just some guy on the telly. Why, like, why react? Just, you know, just say, sure, I didn't see the programme. You know, OK, yeah. we lost to London. We're training again tomorrow night. We're going to get back on track. Yeah, it's, uh, kind, of, it's kind of a damned if you do and damned if you don't, though, because... Say Kevin Walsh didn't say anything, then it's allowed just be out there. Oh, I no, understand where you're saying. And oh, I no, do hang actually... on. No, no, hang on. I, I have no problem with Kevin Walsh, as he did later that week, yeah. saying, well, Eamon O'Hara can say what he likes, but here's my side of the story. I have no problem with that. Absolutely, that's fine. But this whole kind of, you know, uh, the, the Sligo County chairman taking notice of something that was said on a TV programme, there is no cause and effect. You know, he, he, all he has to say is, well, absolutely not take Marty Morrissey's phone call for mm. a start and say, no, we're not going to be responding to that. Uh, the lads are back training tomorrow night. You can talk to Kevin if you like, but there you go. And fair enough, Kevin can defend himself, fair enough. But I don't, I just think that, that and it has gone on through the year. It happened with Paul Grimley after uh, uh, Brawley again excoriated him after the, the Cavan game. And more and more, I don't understand when there... As Enda says, very rightly, you know, you take what Broly says with a pinch of salt, you take what Spillane says with a pinch of salt. When th these people who are employed for entertainment reasons, let's not forget, that is their job. Their job is a, an entertainment programme on the television. That to then base uh, your argument or to react so strongly... I just don't get it. I don't see why you would. I think, the, I think the better thing is just to brush it off, much in the way as Enda has just brushed off Joe Brolin. Yeah, but what about that, Enda? Do you feel it is possible? You, you clearly feel strongly that uh, it's unfair. It's been unfair on certain individuals that, they've been, that they have been the brunt of criticism. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to know. Like, I fully agree with Maliki, and I suppose as Maliki's talking there, I'm probably thinking to myself, there probably is a need to, to I suppose, become more mature. Like, the, the, the proliferation in media coverage of the GA is massive over the past 
several years and I suppose now it's about making statements and you can even see players and managers are now starting to come out with stronger statements where sort of several years ago I know what me as a player you give the same run of the middle responses to every single question for fear that you would ever for fear that you would ever motivate the opposition now managers are nearly coming out of the way and you see it in soccer and I always wondered how they would do it in soccer they'd come out and nearly try to you know you'd see Alex Ferguson and they'd come out trying to on purpose try to wind up people and you would never do it in Gaelic because you would just get hammered but I suppose maybe in Gaelic we, we need to get used to the media coverage and sort of as players and as managers take it with a wee bit more of a pinch of salt and let them write and say what they want to say and take a step back so certainly Malachi has a point my problem was I suppose because of the programs involved and I know from the man on the street unfortunately is led to a certain extent by what is covered in the main media and we even see that Crook Park seem to be led by a certain extent in terms of their disciplinary procedures by what's said in studios so studios do seem to have a power it's a, it's a, Sunday, know, game, it's a Sunday game specifically we're, we're talking about isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely like I know from, from my point of view the throne team that I was involved in and I was thinking about this recently we for my money, and obviously I'm highly biased in this, uh, if you take 10 of the best football matches in the past 10 years, I would think Throne is probably involved in about half of them. If you take the Throne v Armagh clashes, the Throne v Kerry clashes, and the Throne v Dublin clashes, you know, there, there's some brilliant clashes there over the years with, with some of the best football we've seen. But we are remembered for puke football and cynical <laughs> fouling and blanket mm. defence. And true, all of them... And, 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 hang on, and... Uh, Sorry, that isn't true. You're not remembered for that. You're remembered well, that for... Is, that's that, what you feel. That's, that's, you know. that's what I feel, certainly. And me and that team, like even the, the puke football thing has stuck. And so these, these labels that are bandied about do stick. Now, I would, I would fully agree still that by, by then commenting on them and by reacting to them, you give them further credibility, which, as you've pointed out, they're not you because it's just one man's opinion, but uh, it's just difficult with the whole RTE Tyrone thing that's ongoing at the minute with Mickey Hart. Uh, I think it's just another thing simmering in the background. So unfortunately that is there, but again, I think it's a distraction. It's playing into RTE's hands and that their viewing figures are going to be through the roof yeah. for Sunday. Everybody's going to be tuning in to see what Brawley says about it. I know for a fact, because I was chatting to Joe, uh, Joe is playing a, a PR storm within Tyrone. He's at every at every Tyrone charity opening, he's at every club thing that's happening in Tyrone, and he's the ultimate Tyrone man at the minute. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how he's, 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 he's sort, and I know that he's going to come out w- with that uh, on the Sunday game, but uh, so from that point of view, it is just entertainment. Yeah, which I thought is... From, yeah. And from the GA's point of view, it's fantastic because there's been more coverage of GA this year and of talk of the games than ever, and their attendances are through the roof. So it's a win-win from everybody. And Tyrone, from their point of view, the only thing they have to worry about is the performance against Mayo. And if they come out, which they are capable of doing, and turning in a big performance against Mayo and creating a big upset, well, hey, that's just a great story. And Tyrone are back in the front foot again. I think that's. 
from a throne point of view, that's really the only thing we, we should be worried about. In fact, the only people that might be the losers out of this could be Mayo because they're going to suffer from the build-up for this one, you would think. It certainly seems to be, and James Horn alluded to that, that Tyrone are in a great position now where they can let everyone talk about how great Mayo are, let everyone talk about how cynical Tyrone are, and they just come in under the radar and spring what might be a surprise, I guess, if they were to beat Mayo, which sounds a little bit weird. But we'll leave it there for the time being. Isn't Anna McGinley? Great stuff. Thanks very much. All right. Malky, thank you very much for coming in. Too. No problem at all. Liberty Insurance is proud to be the first ever partner of both GAA Hurling and Camogie. To celebrate, we will give €50 Euro to your local GAA club when you take out a Liberty Insurance motor or home policy. For more, visit libertygaa.ie. Liberty Insurance. Insurance the way it should be. Terms and conditions apply. Offer applies to new policies for private motor or home insurance taken out between now and the 13th of October 2013. Liberty Insurance Limited is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. What age were you, Murph? This is a related topic. Okay. What age were you when you started playing Gaelic football? Uh, probably about eight. Competitively? So, yeah, I, I would have played under 10s. Yeah, like like little challenge matches against you know the neighbouring parishes or whatever. I did, no, there was no under ten league. There was under twelve league, but yeah. no under ten league. Well, one of the points made by Tyrone in that document that we've been talking about is that Tyrone made its under twelve football and down, anything below under twelve essentially mm. uncompetitive thirty years ago, uh, long before that idea became fashionable. It's something that's actually become quite fashionable in soccer too over recent years that you don't as a 12 year old you don't really want to be getting too caught up in having to win matches yeah you should be actually just practicing your technique and being sportsmanlike and all that which is a good idea it's probably the right idea but a 12 year old me or a 10 year old little me would have hated that yeah I actually would have gone off and played another no I wouldn't have quite gone off and played another sport but the whole thing Join was some to, breakaway league yeah where yeah, technique yeah. was relegated to the, the winner take all <laughs> South Dublin league I, I, I think I would have liked that. Road. I was I I've always hated competition. Ah, see here, see this is the the key difference here. Ken, terrible. Me and you, quite good. So we wanted the competition, and Ken would much rather that you put flowers in each other's hair, yeah. you know, and have have a little run around, throw a ball in after five Look, minutes. The way I see it, you know, we're here together on a tiny particle of dust orbiting a lonely sun. We might as well work together. Mm. I'm sure that explanation would have really cut it with my 12-year-old self when I was completely and utterly obsessed about nothing else except Milton winning the you know, Division 3 under-12 North Board League. Sean Kelly was the world's number one cyclist for much of the 1980s. He was the first rider to win the green jersey in the Tour de France four times. He won the Tour of Spain, repeatedly was victorious in the sport's toughest classics and has finally brought out his autobiography. It's called Hunger and Sean joins us in studio. Sean, thanks very much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Five years you spent as the number one cyclist in the world, and you've now trumped that by spending six weeks at the top of the book charts in Ireland. Yes, uh, it's doing amazingly well. Uh, the book, of course, um, it's uh, you know uh, going on. The last two years we have been working on it, but I've been approached for many, many years, and I've uh, I've just pushed people off. But eventually, I gave in, and um, it's been. Um, it's been a, a long time putting it together, doing a lot of research, of course. It goes back many, many years, and for that reason, uh, two years, uh, a lot of research and a lot of work. But uh, thank God it's working out well and it's uh, flying off the shelves. Why did you finally give in and write the book? 
Well, uh, just uh, when you're on the events like the Tour of France and all those events back in Europe, you meet so many journalists, the English-speaking journalists, and there's many of them wanted to do the book, and uh, a lot of them were calling me over the last uh, five, ten years, uh, more so in the last five or six years. And uh, eventually, uh, yeah, I decided to do well. I will go for it, and uh, you know, with the um, with the with the, with the guys I worked with. Um, there was times I regretted it, certainly when I was doing it because there was a lot of you know long long days. But uh, you know, uh, uh, the end product, I suppose, that's what you really have to look at, and that is you know a success at the moment. It's really doing well, and uh, for that reason, uh, I'm happy I went to do, went ahead and uh, got down to doing it. Uh, why did you fight the? urge for so long when you didn't seem to have the urge but how come you spent so long without writing an autobiography you see sports people these days I think Wayne Rooney had his first autobiography out when he was about 20 years of age well I think I uh, had so much on my plate so much going on and uh, I had an idea how you know how much time it would take because uh, you know I spoke to people about how long you would have to sit down with uh, uh, with somebody doing the research and you know that takes uh, many many weeks and many months really and for that reason uh, I didn't want to you know go go and do that because time uh, you know when I retired from cycling I thought you know it would be a great life and I would have a lot of spare time I'd be able to go play golf ride my bike any day I like during the week but it hasn't been the case I've been so busy since I retired uh, and I suppose yeah it's a it's a good problem to have Yeah one of the things that's keeping it busy is commentary obviously for Eurosport I guess younger people listening to this younger cycling fans won't even remember your years as a cyclist so much they'll think of you as the guy who commentates on Eurosport if you told if you today could somehow tell the 20-year-old Sean Kelly that you'd be a TV star, what would he say? Well, I, I would uh, I'd say you're totally mad because uh, when I was coming up in cycling, first of all, I was a guy with very few words. And uh, it's, uh, it's amazing, you know, with practice um, and I suppose with confidence. But first of all, with practice, when I started off doing the commentary work, and I, again, with the commentary, when I retired, I was approached immediately, pretty much immediately, to go and do some of the classics, of course, because they were my, you know, uh, forte point uh, in my career. And uh, I did not do that for many years uh, after retiring, but eventually I also gave in. And... Uh, yeah, the twenty-year-olds now, I suppose, um, you know, they can do. They they learn so much about cycling. There's so much out there to learn about. Uh, they can, you know, do a, do the research very quickly, very easily, and learn about the riders of the past. You make the point in the book that even during your career, you say, "I found that I learned more from listening than I did from talking." So you were naturally quiet enough, but that you could turn that into an advantage by just you know, a lot of people are pumping in a lot of hot air, and you're just taking in what's happening around you. Well, I suppose I learned at a very young age my father working on the farm when we were doing some jobs, he would always say to me, will you listen? And I think that stayed with me for the rest of my life and the rest of my career. And uh, then I went on, um, you know, become professional. And uh, of course, I was... uh, uh, a man of very few words. Um, I listened a lot, and uh, I joined the Gribaldi in the beginning of my professional career, my fourth years professional. And I always remember to this day, the Gribaldi uh, said to me, "When you're talking to the journalists, if you give them three words, they will make twenty-five out of it. So be careful what you say when you're talking about the events, and especially when I went further up in my career, when I was winning the classics and when I was favourite for the classics. Uh, he would always say to me, you know, uh, do not, you know, give them too much because then they will knock you down." If you do not, uh, if you do not win, if you do not succeed uh, in the event, even within the peloton, did you find it was maybe an advantage not to say too much, have a little bit of a mystique around you? 
Um, well, of course, when I went to the peloton, the professional peloton, let's say, uh, there was very little English speakers in the peloton at that time, back in those years. And um, uh, my French in the beginning wasn't great, so it took me a number of years, you know, to uh, to get comfortable to speak French. But uh, I don't think, you know, in the peloton, you can see the guys the way they're riding. And uh, I think when you're out there competing, they can see from your actions, from your movements, uh, they can read your form and read your, uh, your race tactic pretty well. Most recently in this you got the chance to commentate an Irish stage victory. I remember watching Dan Martin win that and you were cautious enough about calling it too early. He was on a two-man breakaway but the chasers weren't too far behind. At what stage did you realise that he that they were clear and that Dan Martin was going to win a stage for Ireland? Well, when it's 30 seconds, of course, um, you know, in the last number of kilometres, it's always uh, it's always a risky one because you have two guys out in front and uh, we've often seen in the past when you get two guys, they get to the final two kilometres and then they start looking at each other who's going to, you know, keep on the pace setting on the front in that final 2K. And when there's a group behind, as was the case in that stage with Dan Martin 1, uh, there was a group of at least 25 riders. And, you know, if they get together in the final number of kilometres, 30 seconds can melt down so quickly. Uh, so you, know, you always have to be real careful and uh, always the worry about the guys will not cooperate together when they get to the uh, the final number of kilometres. But uh, yeah, thankfully they did. They worked well together. And of course, you know, you never know what two guys. It's all about how much you have got left in the tank in the end of a stage. Uh, Dan Martin would have been the fastest, um, but uh, you just never know when you're with another rider. If he's on a really good day, he can, you know, throw up a surprise. Sean, there seems to be a resurgence now with Dan Martin and Nicholas Roach and others uh, flying the flag for Ireland. Are you proud of, is this one of the things that you're proud of from your own career, popularising the sport in the country? Because when you began to cycle, you weren't the first to cycle the Tour de France, but it wasn't exactly a massive sporting event when you started cycling it. No, uh, it certainly wasn't a massive... uh, In Ireland, that is. Yes, in Ireland, in this country. uh, You know, it was... uh, um, it was one of the minority sports, I suppose you could say. And when I went abroad, uh, you know, there hadn't been anybody there for many years. So it took a it took a long number of years before the press started to give us a bit of coverage. And then, you know, we got that uh, snowball effect where we had a huge, uh, successful years with all the Irish riders on the professional scene, and we had an explosion here in Ireland with the amateur scene. Uh, so it's great to see the guys on the uh, on the circuit at the moment in the Tour of France with the two Irish guys there this year. Uh, and one thing I will say, I think, you know, back in the end of the 80s, we had a lot of very talented riders that got very close to getting to the, into the professional ranks, but just missed that step, you know, uh, by a tiny bit, by a, you know, a, a fraction. And unfortunately, we missed out there. And that's what we got. We got 10, 15 years, maybe, where we had nobody out there. And it's just a matter if you miss out for, you know, uh, if you miss out for a couple of years, well, then you take um, you take a drop and interest drops. And it did certainly drop it in Ireland as well because, you know, the number of royals competing dropped off a lot for many, many years. Why is that, do you think? Why wasn't it built on at the time, the success of yourself and Roach and there was Paul Kimmich, Martin Erdy, all these guys around at that stage? Well, I think uh, we all thought it would just grow from there and it would be a snowball effect. And I certainly thought, you know, I was under, this, under the impression of this, the same thing would happen as as uh, Cycling Ireland uh, was. And a lot of people say, well, Cycling Ireland didn't do enough. And I suppose in hindsight, they did not do enough. But when you look at the way, you know, uh, the, um, we were competing, the, f- the four of us were competing there in Europe and, you know, winning uh, the big tours, winning all the classics uh, and uh, the crop of talented riders we had uh, scattered all over Europe. 
Europe, in Belgium, in France, uh, in Italy. Uh, you know, very, very talented Irish riders. I was uh, sure that they would, a number of them, go on to the, uh, get into a professional team and go on from there. And I was expecting, you know, at least five or six to continue on when I was coming to the end of my career. But unfortunately, you know, they did not make it into the, uh, to get a professional contract and then we lost out. And I think uh, with the Eastern Bloc countries allowed to become professional, I think that was uh, a difficult one for the Irish because there were so many Eastern European countries with very talented riders, wanted to ride for, you know, for nothing. You give them a jersey and a bike and off they would go and they would compete there. And for that reason, I think uh, the Irish guys, you know, missed the train and uh, we missed a huge opportunity to grow from the great years of the mid-80s. Yeah, and they were great years of people, and a lot of people do remember them, of course, the Nissan Classic arriving. Whatever about you guys competing abroad, seeing you all in the flesh, cycling around Ireland, competing really, um, I guess, intensely against each other and against the other top cyclists, were huge crowds. They were pretty happy days for you, I guess. Well, the, the Nissan Classic was an amazing event, of course. You know, the first of the first time the Nissan Classic was um, uh, on the road, the first year when we came back to compete here, it was just unbelievable. The turnout we got at the start, all the towns we went through. You know, the uh, the workers were left off for an hour off work to just see the race going through. The schools were, you know, had their uh, had their half day, and uh, you know, the amount of people that uh, came to the roadsides, came to the finish, uh, I uh, we were all amazed because. Competing in the Tour of France, of course, you expect quite big crowds, but here, you know, it was just uh, uh, it, it was just a huge surprise to us, and we did not realise we had such a following, uh, you know, uh, back here in our, in our home country. Yeah, and you say of that '85, I think '85 is the first Nissan Classic. You're talking about your rivalry with Stephen Roach at that point, you say, "Let's be straight about it. I wanted to bury Roach that week. I know you guys are friends and all that, all the rest of it, but there seems that there was some needle at some point in that rivalry, was there?" Well, there was always a needle uh, when we were competing. Uh, you know, we were best of buddies off the bike, but uh, I can tell you um, when we were competing in the Paris Nices and, you know, some of the classic races like the Lege Bastogne Liege, uh, you know, there was a lot of rivalry there. And uh, when we came back to compete in the Force Nissan, it was more again because, you know, it was, a, it was a home national tour and to win that was going to be a huge thing. So, yes, there was, uh, 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 you know, there was a huge, uh, huge amount of pressure on, on both of us and, uh, you know, we're all really up for uh, to, uh, to to have a good performance and to win the race if possible. You did bury him that year. Well, yes, it was it was a surprise on that stage from Dublin to Wexford. You know, the race was um, pretty easy in the first maybe hour or so, but then the race started to get active. It got aggressive, and uh, there was a lot of movement. And uh, yes, uh, you know, I was in a group that went away, and Roche had missed it. And uh, of course, yeah, it was an opportunity because there was a time trial from Carrick to Clonmel as well, and I was a little bit maybe concerned about that because Roche he can you know put in some magnificent time trials, and he did do during his career. So I wanted to get the advantage take a bit of time before that time trial from Carrick to Clonmel. There was, uh, you mentioned Paris-Nice rivalry that you had. I think, that, I think that was a race that suited both of you, so the two of you would have a go at each other on that. The previous year, 1984, you ended up on the podium together, I'm right in saying, after having a, li- a few words with each other through the race itself. Well, there was, <laughs> there was many words through the race, um, you know, and there is one in the 87 tour, um, which there was, you know, um, um, a lot of words after the event and, um, you know, Roach punctured in the final. But it was a situation and we've seen the situation now, I suppose, in the Tour of France when somebody punctures the crash in the final, uh, you know, the riders, they just continue on racing. And it was exactly the same case in Paris-Nice. It was with 20, 25 kilometres before the finish. Uh, 
I had decided with my cast team to take up the race very early to make it difficult to try and eliminate the sprinters and get the time bonification which I needed badly to try and win the race um, but unfortunately for Stephen you know we had uh, really blown the race apart we had 25 30 riders left uh, going into that final 20 kilometres and he punctured and the race continued and uh, yeah he lost the race there and then and of course he had you know um, he had some words because uh, you know we probably upped the pace a little bit again but that is you know the uh, that is racing and that is the risk when you get a mechanical in the final uh, there's you know there's there's no presence I know you've been asked the question many times about whether there was jealousy in 1987 when Roach won everything that he won um, it was an amazing year for him and when you contrast it with your own year that year in the book it kind of it makes it even more pronounced because you had a very tough year that you were crashed out of the Tour de France you had to pull out of the Tour of Spain that year when you were going to win the thing and De Grabaldi your first sort of mentor in cycling in France he passed away that year it seems crazy that so many good things could happen for Stephen so many bad things could happen for you What, what did you look at it and go that could have been me well, you can call it what you like, jealousy, I suppose. At the end of the day, that's what it is. And um, it started a long, long time before that, before 87, uh, when Stephen came on the scene and his first, uh, his first season, he won, um, he won Paris-Nice, he won the Tour of Corsica. And, uh, you know, I had been out there, I had been, you know, the top Irish guy for a number of years before that, winning smaller events. And, uh, you know, this Irish guy comes along. And, of course, you know, it's, uh, it, 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 I think it was a big help in my career. You know, it gave me a good kick up the backside and... And got me on and said, "Well, you know, I have to get you know uh, get some better performances here." And for that reason, I suppose I w- maybe I won some races that I mightn't have won during my career. Uh, and '87, of course, yeah, was the big one for Stephen. And you know, when you crash out of a Tour of France, it's very disappointing. Uh, and then when Stephen was doing well, I was watching the race back in Belgium, uh, and you know, he's taking on the li- all the limelight. And of course, if I tell you anything else, I would be definitely telling you lies. That I, you know, uh, it was it was brilliant to see Stephen win. Uh, the Tour de France and of course the World Championships at the end of that year but when you're sitting at home well then you know you have a little bit of uh, a, a little bit of a sore point I suppose when you're not in there and you know trying to compete against them. I find cycling very interesting Sean in the amount of Irish people involved in various things that have happened over the years and Pat McQuaid of course is the top man now at the UCI you go back an awful long way with Pat uh, back beyond this but the story in the book you tell is an incredible one of a trip to apartheid South Africa in 1975 how did that come about? It was um, during the Tour of Ireland um, um, that year uh, there was a Scottish rider uh, John Corden he uh, he came to us and he said yeah there's this race in South Africa at the very end of the season the very end of the year and he said would you be interested in going along and uh, yeah um, uh, Pat was there, and uh, yeah, we said, "What's you know, what what's, what race is it? How long is it? You know?" And uh, we just you know talked about the event, and then he said, "You're going to be competing under uh, false names, and it's going to be a, a GB team, and uh, you know, uh, there's no way you can be found out because you know uh, you're not going to be riding under your own name." And um, we decided to go there, and of course, you know, uh, uh, the story we know we know the rest. Uh, you know, Liz Taylor was on our second honeymoon out there and uh, there was a lot of the English tabloid press there and they decided to do a story and that's how the word got back that we were we were out there competing on the false names and yeah we got uh, suspended from competing on the, in the Olympics uh, the following year. I get the sense just from reading that chapter that you don't really regret that now going to apartheid South Africa? 
Well, um, not not regret it big time, but I do regret it a little bit because not going to the Olympics, it would have been nice to compete in the Olympics, you know, on one occasion. But uh, when you look at the other side, if I had went there to Montreal... Uh, I might have, you know, done done pretty well in the road race, and uh, w- decided to wait, you know, for the following uh, the following Olympics four years later, and go back and try and maybe get a medal. And I might have never been professional. Uh, so I think, you know, that's the destiny is, is set out for you. And uh, uh, f- being uh, suspended from going to the Olympics, that was the reason I went to France as an amateur for a year to Mits, and then I got a professional contract and moved on from there. So. You know, maybe I might never have been professional if I hadn't went to South Africa. In terms of what was going on in that country at that time, though, there was a very good reason why people weren't allowed to internationally play sport over there. You didn't have reservations about the regime there or anything you saw there. Well, not before I went, uh, certainly, because I, I, you know, I did not really know uh, um, a huge amount about it. But when I went out there, I, you know, I see it for myself, and uh, I, I see the reasons why. Um, and uh, of course, yes, uh, when we got suspended, well, I, uh, I read a bit more about it then, and I, you know, I studied it a bit more. So um, certainly, before I went out there, I didn't realize it was it could be a, 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 the reason that it could be so serious. But of course, yeah. Uh, I think uh, the story was uh, that we could go out there and compete under different names. I think that was what sold it to me. You, your friendship with Paul Kimmage, did that become strained when he brought out his book, Rough Ride? Um, not really strained. I, you know, I commented on the book when uh, Paul uh, brought it out. Um, as I said, I'm not, uh, I'm not a book reader at all. And um, uh, you never read the book from I cover to cover. Never read from cover to cover. And um, 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 you know, um, it, people people find that amazing. But I, you know, I I start I start a book with great intentions, and I you know I read ten or fifteen pages, then I leave it down. I leave it for a number of days, and when I come back, I say, yes, where did I where did I stop off?" And I try to you know to memorize what I have uh, what I've already read, and uh, I, I find it difficult, so I have to go back again, and they always seem to be going back over what I have uh, uh, what I've already went through, and uh, so for that reason, some of the books I just you know go through them and you know pick out pages and read parts of it and uh, to this day it's still the same. The subject of doping features uh, fairly briefly in your book Sean, a couple of pages on your own positive tests, a little bit about three quarters of a page on Rough Ride and a small bit about Palentier your former teammate who was taken out of the Tour de France when you're not much more than that did you deliberately not want to spend too much time speaking about that subject which is quite a hot topic in cycling these days? Well, I suppose the book is about myself. It's not really about doping. So if you go into the doping situation, uh, you know, you could uh, take over half the book with that. Um, Would that not be an interesting thing, though, given that you're you're such a legend of the sport and you have an important role in it now in terms of talking about it? I think people might be interested in you going into detail on it. Well, I don't know if people are interested in going into uh, a book uh, about Sean Kelly. Uh, and talking about doping maybe for 50% of the book, I don't think they would be interested in that at all because uh, the doping situation has went on for, you know, far too long, too, you know, too many years. And, you know, we have uh, uh, we have read so much about it and I think people are pretty well educated on the doping situation because it's getting so much exposure over the last 15 plus years. Uh, so I don't think, you know, the book about Kelly, we don't have to start talking... 
devote a huge amount of the book to doping. I think what the people are interested in is about my career and you know the uh, the earlier days of my career, how I got into biking, and uh, you know a lot of interesting points right through my career. Yeah, no, I take that point. I just feel that perhaps you talk about people understanding doping now and there being a lot more education which is true but I don't think you can ever learn too much about a subject like that so if you maybe talked a bit more uh, in a bit more detail about doping in your era or what you think of what's going on now that might benefit people Well I think as I say what we have read over the last 15 plus years, uh, people are pretty well educated now on the uh, on the doping problems we've had, uh, which went on for f- you know far too long. Uh, so I, I don't think I can add an awful lot to it. Uh, I went through the problems that I had during my career. I covered all of them subjects and I felt uh, that was all I needed to do. You tested positive twice yourself. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And then 1984 was Paris-Brussels, a three-month suspended ban. Can you explain what happened there? Stimul was the substance that was found. Well, I think it's all in the book. Um, you know, there was a problem within the uh, doping control on that occasion where there was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of people in there. And uh, I was giving uh, a positive um, on a product called Stimul, which is something that... Uh, I checked out with my GP in Belgium. It's something that students take when they're, you know, uh, going for exams uh, or studying, you know, many hours leading up to exams. And uh, it's a product that I never, uh, uh, that I never had uh, taken. And uh, I went through the process, of course, you know, where you have the B sample and then you go uh, A sample first of all, then B sample. And in the B sample, you know, there was. Um, the sample was a lot less than the minimum requirement, so there was, you know, a problem there immediately. But of course, when you go through the controls, uh, you sign off all the paperwork, and uh, when you sign that, well, then you are agreeing that everything is uh, carried out correctly. But when you go to thirty-five, forty controls during the year, you know, you uh, you get so used to going to them, you probably just, you know. Uh, do not take enough attention and I think that was my problem as well on that occasion uh, you know, I, I had been to the controls it was in I think September would have been that race Paris-Brussels so I had been to the controls certainly 35 to 40 times so you know you get so used to it uh, you uh, maybe do not take as much uh, attention as you should as you should uh, do and um, you know that was uh, uh, that could have been the problem that uh, that that, uh, that you know happened at the end of the day but there was you know an incorrect uh, uh, there was an incorrect in the sample B there certainly the incorrect part of that being that you didn't feel there was enough urine in the sample in the B sample the recent book by David Walsh Seven Deadly Sins which he brought out he said that he was with you in the morning of that race and that he heard a bottle of pills clanking around in your back pocket which aroused his suspicions well, that's something that came out quite late. Um, you know, uh, I had known David for many years, and it seemed to have, uh, it seemed to surface uh, fifteen years later. Uh, that story, but um, certainly having something in your back pocket wouldn't be uh, uh, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary. I certainly went into races with some with some tablets in my pocket. You would have caffeine. You would have something maybe for cramp in the classic races where you have to do two hundred and sixty kilometres. You would have an anti cramp tablet which you would take in the end of the race. And I did take uh, caffeine anti cramp. I took them a lot of times in the end of the big classic races. So uh, having something in your pocket uh, wouldn't be. Uh, uh, wouldn't be uh, abnormal, out of normal at all uh, for the riders going into the big, long-distance races. Right, both David Walsh and Paul Kimmage brought that same story up. I think Paul was there that morning as well. Do you know why they would speak like that? Because they were 
um, insinuating that it was that they felt that it might be something more than just caffeine pills. Well, um, again, as I said, uh, the story came out so many years later. I cannot remember uh, if if it was if it was correct or not. If I had something in my pocket or not, because as I said, some races you go out, the important races, the big races, of course, you know, you would take something with you. Uh, in the end of a two hundred and sixty kilometer race, as Paris Brussels would have been, as all the big classics are, although the Paris Brussels wasn't a big classic, it was still a long distance race. So, yeah. The, I'm not saying that I did not have something in my pocket. It's certainly possible that I could have had something in my pocket. As I said, you know, the caffeine, anti, uh, anti-cramp uh, tablet, uh, that, would, uh, that would have been, uh, you know, uh, often the case when you go into these long-distance races. The second positive test was in 1988. That was for codeine. This was something that you took in a cough bottle. Yes, <clears throat> something that I went to my uh, uh, pharmacist in Belgium who was... Uh, a member of the uh, the Belgium Cycling Federation, and um, in the uh, it was in the early part of the season. Uh, the Pays Basque, of course, was in um, April, end of April, and I went to him and I said, "I want something, you know, a cough syrup which I can take during the events in in case I get, you know, a cold and get a cough." And uh, during that uh, Pays Basque, two of the Pays Basque country, uh, I took the uh, cough bottle, went to the control on the final day. And uh, yes, I was uh, taken uh, positive with uh, with codeine, and I suppose yes. When you look at the products, uh, codeine is it a performance-enhancing drug or not? I don't um, I don't see that as a performance-enhancing drug. I think it's something for the general health of the riders. But uh, there's a lot of products on the list of you know the um, the UCI which are positive, um, but I don't uh, I don't regard them as being a performance-enhancing products. You say in the book that that was only a small distraction in the days leading up to the Vuelta. It didn't seem to be a massive deal in the 80s, a positive test. Even that first one we talk about, you didn't actually have to serve any suspension. Ultimately, you have to pay a relatively small fine. Yes. Um, well, the regulations, of course, back then, they were not as severe as uh, as they have been in the in the last years. Um and I suppose it all comes down to what you, you know, what you're taking with as well. If you're taking with some performance like growth hormone, um, uh, steroids, all of that sort of products, well, then it would be a much serious situation. And of course, the team as well, you know, the team behind you, they realize, um, you know, the problem. Uh, they study the situation and that helps a lot as well. Uh, so, um, you know, I feel that, you know, those products, uh, they're something that, Everybody should have a right to take. I think if you're a little bit sick and you're in an event, take it a week-long race, take it a three-week race, take it a one-day yeah. race, you should be allowed to use some of those products. So the codeine, you've been quite clear on what you feel about that. Regarding the stimulant or any other banned substance, are you saying that you never took, any besides that positive in 1988, you feel the 1984 positive there were some procedural errors with? So you you didn't take stimulant. I suppose the question is, did you ever take performance-enhancing drugs knowingly? Well, Caffeine is, an, is a performance-enhancing drug because it was on the list for a number of years. Uh, None of the stronger stuff that you speak about there. Well, no. Um, when, you, um, when you look back, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, caffeine was on the list and uh, then it was taken off. Then it was put back on the, uh, uh, the anti-doping list again, uh, prohibited substance, and uh, it's, it's changed over so many years. Uh, so, you know, those products, I, you know, they are... If you really look at them, well, you could say they are performance enhancing, performance enhancing. But you know, now you look at caffeine; it's not on the list anymore. Do you feel, Sean, in any way that 
the omerta that people talk about with cycling and we kind of touched on it there with the reaction to Paul Kimmage. I know that you, as somebody who'd been friends, a friend of his, were being badgered by everybody in the peloton about what's this guy doing. Nobody was happy at that time that anyone would come out and speak out. It seems to be a little more accepted now. But do you think that that code of omerta, that code of silence contributed to the problems that cycling ended up facing, which escalated in the 90s and in the noughties with Lance Armstrong? Well, I think the problem was, you know, very deep down in the teams. It was, you know, uh, it was organised within the teams for many years. And, you know, we've seen that um, uh, much later on. And um, I think nobody realised the doping problem was uh, so serious going back 15 plus years ago. Um, the guys writing about it, you know, they were um, they were highlighting a lot, but, uh, you know, they did not realise it was so serious. It was just uh, as time went on and more information came out, more things surfaced, um, then we realised that it was such a se- it was such serious and it was, you know, so uh, there was so much uh, it was so much organised within the teams. It was, you know, st- structure within the teams. Were you pleased for David Walsh and Paul Kimmage that their work bore fruit with regards to Lance Armstrong after all those years that Armstrong was brought down? Yes, I think it was, you know, um, in hindsight, you know, you have to take your hat off to those guys because they went out, they stuck their, uh, they stuck their neck out um, and, uh, you know, um, you know, they they followed for so many years and uh, it just took so many years to get on top of the situation and I think uh, it it took far too long. And, you know, thank God now uh, the situation is, you know, in a much healthier uh, state and uh, hopefully it just goes on from here. Pat McQuaid, on the other hand, I guess public opinion has gone the other way on Pat. Do you have sympathy for his position at the moment? Well, I think uh, anybody, you know, uh, when you're you're at the head of um, a governing body, if you're the head of a company... Um, you're always going to take stick when things go wrong, and there are always going to be people, you know, looking for, uh, looking to get you out, and uh, that is the case with McQuaid at the moment. And um, you know, when he went in there, um, the doping problem was, you know, really at its at its uh, height, and uh, it took uh, a lot of years to get on top of it. And I think yeah, the the biological passport have helped a lot. We've seen that over the last number of years. It's taken uh, a lot of the uh, the big names out. It's taking uh, you know a huge number of riders have be, have been taken out be, because of the biological passport. Uh, so yeah, you have to give him a bit of credit for that. But you know he uh, he's in a he's in a situation. He's uh, head of uh, UCI, so he's going to get stick. He's made mistakes. I think it's fair to say also, and has ultimately lost the backing of his home country. Is that going to do you think be the death knell of his presidency? Would you see? I don't know how um, how much you, you think Cookson is going to challenge him, but uh, we see that McQuaid's trying just about everything to hang on to power there. Do you think he's going to succeed? I think it's going to be a difficult one. Um, before uh, the uh, candidate Brian Cookson, uh, you know, put his candidate uh, uh, went forward. Um, well, um, it was um, looking like that McQuaid could go on and maybe maybe get another term. But now I think he's going to be the big challenger. Uh, so it's not uh, it's not going to be easy. And uh, I don't really know. It's like it's like in elections. You know, you have to wait and see. You have to wait until. Uh, uh, the UCI Congress and uh, when it goes to vote and of course it's all the federations from around the world who have uh, have the vote. Sean, we saw Chris Froome winning the Tour de France this year but having to field constant questions as did his team about 
doping allegations. Um, I don't know how you feel about Froome's situation there because the guy himself, nothing has been proven that he has done anything wrong and yet he's not really allowed to enjoy his victory because everyone just assumes people who are riding as fast as he did this year are up to something. Well, I think in in all sports now, when somebody you know um, uh, throws up a magnificent performance, especially in cycling, uh, because of where we're coming from, you know the um, the years, so many years of the doping problems, when a rider starts to produce a great performance, which room, you know, uh, uh, he put up a great performance in the Tour of France this year. So there are going to be questions, and I think uh, those questions are going to continue on for a number of years until you know we get a much um, a much cleaner sport. We've had it in the past two or three years; it's cleaned up big time. But um, you know, when you have fifteen years of doping problems within cycling, it's going to you know take at least. I think 10 years before people will stop asking those questions of the winner of the Tour de France. So do you think it's fair for people to ask the questions then? Well, I think people have the right to ask questions when you see, you know, uh, when you see where we're coming from, I think for that reason they have the right. Okay, Sean Kelly, the book is called Hunger. As I said, it's top of the charts and has been for a number of weeks. Listen, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us Thank you very much. That's the question. That's going to be answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight. Tonight. Into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight. Their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. Second Captains Football. Available on irishtimes.com, Second Captains, and iTunes from 6 p.m. tonight. 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 Hope you enjoyed that chat with Sean Kelly. Cycling is an interesting sport for quite a few reasons, but one of them is the Irish interest. We once had the two best riders, and I thought Sean was very good there, and the rivalry with Roach and just what Irish cycling was about at that time. We now have the UCI president, of course, and two of the journalists who took on Lance, not forgetting Emma O'Reilly and other characters involved there. But I know there is an argument, by the way, I'm sure people listening to say that Sean isn't obliged to write about doping. He's entitled to only put in a couple of pages if that's what he wants, which is fair enough. I just think that in the book and even chatting to Sean there, the more he gives you, the more somebody like that can give you about doping in his time and what he thinks about it now, the better I think you can understand what is a huge subject, a problem that nearly brought cycling to its knees. I don't think it's too far, um, too much of an exaggeration to say. And when he does make points, Ken, for example, like the idea that he raised that certain substances that, aid recovery mm. or you know just aid uh, not so much aid recovery but help you get better if you're sick as normal non-sports people would uh, would use should be allowed yeah i mean these some people are, would some people you can debate that called, either, but those are those opinions are good to hear these things are called medicines in the normal context um you know i mean every day i take insulin which is banned i don't know what a banned list i'm sure i could get it Terrib- to ue yeah. you know if i was if i was uh, in a but you know it's it's in, in certain contexts can be abused. I mean, it's it, that is kind of the big uh, question, right? The big kind of gray area with doping is at what point does medicine stop and doping begin? Any athlete who has an injury is going to get treated for it. And treatment is a way of uh, speeding up healing or improving prospects of yeah. healing from injuries. And, you know, if you've got something which helps you to do that even faster, it's, it's a point that Bernd Schuster um, has raised in the context of football just in the last couple of days, saying, "I don't, you know, I don't believe it's doping. If you if you've got if you've got a player who's injured and something helps him come back two or three weeks earlier, th- as far as I'm concerned, that's good. 
Um, and at the moment, that's not good because at the, at the moment, the only way that you can sort of draw this grey area is, is more or less arbitrarily saying this is illegal and this is legal. Mm. And if you take the illegal stuff, then you've broken the rules. Um, the, you know, but the question is, should should certain things which are illegal be illegal? Yeah, you know, that's that's where it, that's where it becomes much more difficult. The point about Kelly that I was really trying to get at there is that. I think we all know enough now, and he says that we're a lot more educated now than we were, which is true. I think we all know enough to put particular cases into context and to look at it. He talks to us about the two positive tests that he had. There have been other allegations made, and there's no point just spending half an hour going through all of them necessarily. Uh, I think it's only fair that you put those couple of positive tests to him and see what he has to say about that. But any writer from that era who comes out now and says, yeah, I took this, I, I took that, this was the situation at the time, I don't think people are going to come down on them no. like a ton of bricks necessarily and you know it actually would add to or does add to our understanding and the whole narrative no it, exactly it would add to our understanding and it you know the the general understanding of what the sport was like at that time and how the sport really worked and and you know to preserve a, a real account of what was of what was happening at that time but i suppose from the point of view of people who were actually involved Maybe the the loyalty is to all the other people who are involved at the same time, and maybe they're thinking, you know, do I do I want to make it's it's fine for me maybe to to talk about what was going on with me, but if I do necessarily that implicates other people, you know, there's no way of really talking. I mean, with Tyler Hamilton, he gave chapter and verse on doping in his book, but obviously it, it completely <laughs> Lance Armstrong wouldn't have liked what was in there. Let's just say, you know what I mean? Tyler Hamilton obviously wasn't too bothered about that at that stage. But there's no way of telling, there's no way he could tell his own story without also talking about, you know, Dr. Fuentes, Dr. Ferrari, uh, Mr. Armstrong. There just was no way. It doesn't, doesn't happen to him in isolation. It's a whole system involving lots and lots of people. And maybe that's the reason why people who, you know, from, from the era don't really want to necessarily talk about it because they'd have to talk about everybody else and maybe they don't feel it's their place to do so. Coming up at six o'clock tonight. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What yeah. did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six oh, days. Like I'd like to to say it to your face, not say it to you now. I will go to Anfield and we'll see them all. What you doing down here, you surely, man? Second captain's football, Ken. Okay? Yeah, we're going to talk about, uh, obviously, the opening weekend of the Premier League. Richie's coming into chat to us about that. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the transfers that are going on with uh, Torquish and Carlson, um, who was recently the in charge of transfers at Monaco, who are throwing a hell of a lot of cash around at the moment in, in uh, Europe. We're going to talk a bit about Everton as well, and what's happening there. Manchester United obviously interested in a couple of their players. Maybe one of the guys in that intro there, Jamie Carger, making his debut alongside Gary Neville mm. in that uh, Sky studio. Yeah, I thought he was good. He was very good, yeah. I thought he was sort of unpolished, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Jumping around like a lunatic as well. He was. He was very <laughs> physical, wasn't he? He was very physical, yeah. Did, do you think that Gary Neville became less physical? Gary Neville was grasping that object in his hand, a sort of rod. He was clenching it in both fists. I do want to talk about that. I'm not sure. There was a good relationship between the two, but eh, there were times where I got the sense that... Hey, Neville you know, I'd... do you put two cocks in the same roost? No, you don't, Ken. That's rule number one. Two the captains on the same ship? Never. Um, now, I, I, one thing that I would like to hear you discuss with Richie as well and in your football show is Sky Sports, BT Sports, this is all supposed to be very good news for the consumer mm-hmm. that 
you have two competing television companies throwing loads and loads of money at their football coverage. How, your experience over the weekend, has it been massively improved by the arrival of BT Sport? Have Sky gotten a lot better? Have BT gotten have BT thrown something new into the mix? And also, as a consumer, we're not getting any better value for it. Which that I think costs is very more money. Loads more money, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, I just think it's very interesting. The whole idea of competition in a capitalist world is that competition drives down the price. Mm. But that hasn't been the case at all when it comes to the football, your average couch Because it isn't real budget. competition. It's, it's like a, a, an almost monopoly yeah. uh, by Sky. Uh, I mean, really... You know, it's it's so what there's, you know, if, if there was more competitors in the marketplace, maybe then the price would start to come down. But as it is, uh, it seems like more like a little cartel. The New York Jets quarterback Joe Namath famously guaranteed victory in Super Bowl three. Babe Ruth used to, or at least at one point, pointed to the part of the stadium he was planning to hit a home run into. Gerard Nan told Marty Morrissey in 1995, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And Ortiz, Jer Canning is, well, Davey Fitzgerald is the latest man to make a bold Proclamation. This was in an interview with Jerry Canning before the All Ireland semi final on Sunday. No excuses from us. We have 75 minutes. We're just going to go out there and give it everything we have. John Allen's been saying that's pressure on the referee today. Just, you know, there's been some recent calls that we all know about have had uh, repercussions. How do you feel? Not getting into that stuff whatsoever. Um, John Allen can say what he wants. We've our focus. That's it. You're going to win? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no excuses, no major difficulties for you. Don't write checks, your butt can't cash. And on this occasion, Davy Fitzgerald did indeed write a, write a check that his that was drawn butt down, drawn down by his by his arse. So <laughs> fair play, <laughs> you have to you have to attitude there. Now the great thing about that clip is that you've you I mean the audio is pretty funny, but right when he when he's asked are they going to win the game, he fixes Jer Canning with this kind of manic death stare. <laughs> And, you know, you watch it and go, God, I actually think Clare are going to win this game, just purely on the back of this, uh, this pre-match interview. And win it they did. Derek Ling is with us in studio, and we're joined by Nicky English. Can I put it to you, Derek, that uh, it's something we've alluded to earlier on in the show, that it's a theory, I'm not sure if you agree with it, that the hype got to Limerick, and that's why they lost? I don't think so. I think it'd be wrong to totally dismiss it, um, the fact that it was such a big occasion for Limerick. Um, I just found looking at the game, Clare just got to grips with the pace of it an awful lot easier than Limerick. Um, their touch, uh, they just found it a little bit easier to get scores. And you'd have to, you, you know, I have to. I felt for Declan Hannon at one stage. He came out the sideline trying to rise the ball, and it just wouldn't get into his hand. And, and as Nicky, you tell you, every player has games like that when it just doesn't go right for you. And unfortunately for for Declan, he's one of their main players, and he was on freeze that day. And He's a player that would have been hyped up mm. coming into that game. And, you know, even in the last few years since I've stepped away from it, um, there's one thing about not looking at newspapers and everything else. And, you, you know, you can avoid a certain amount of what's written and what's been said about you, both posit- positive stuff and negative. And, um, you know, Declan is a fella that would have been built up to be, you know, Limerick's main player. And if you, he could have been feeling good going onto the field of play. Next thing you step up, you can take your first free. It doesn't go doesn't go right, the pressure builds as it goes along and the fact that you're, he's probably thinking to himself, all these guys are relying on me to, you know, yeah. slot it over the bar. So it's added pressure as it went along and I've had days like that myself. I'm, Nicky probably only a few, um, but it, these things happen. But I think it would be unfair to just put it down to, you know, hype. That's why Limerick lost it. I don't think it was. I think Clare were just a better team and got to grips with it. Is there any need for 
you always hear about this thing of managers needing to shield their players from the hype and the build-up to a game. It's probably particularly an All-Ireland final, but for these counties, this almost was like an All-Ireland final because they've been away from it for a little while. Is there any need to really do that? You talk about not reading the newspapers and these kind of things. Is it the more important aspect of it to make sure that on the day they handle the situation correctly, that, that really what the hype is, is not the build-up to it, but the actual day when they arrive and the Limerick hurlers arrive and see 40,000 Limerick people in there, Croke Park cheering them on. Is that maybe even... It's more important how they handle the day itself than how they handle the couple of weeks leading into it. True. I, I mean, there's always there's always hype for all Ireland semi-finals, finals. Obviously, a little bit bigger because of the fact that Limerick haven't been in one in a few years. Probably 07, I think, was the last time, or 09. Um, and the same goes for Clare. But, you know, it's. I think it's a good thing. The hype building up to these games is a good thing. You like to see the flags out in the houses. The, there's a good build-up. There's a buzz around. I mean, that's what, that's what players... Um, that's what you're aiming for at the start of the year. That's that's what it's all about. Um, but the key thing, I think, is to remember um, at half three. That's when the ball is thrown in. You have to be you have to be focused on a job at hand. And it's all well and good trying to enjoy the occasion. Some players do, and that's the other side of it. It's it's all very individual. And you see the role of uh, sports psychologists on lots of teams now, and mm. not you know performance coaches call them what you want, and they do have a role to play for some players who. Maybe you know don't deal with the situation um, as well, or maybe just new to that kind of type of a situation where you know really it's about concentrating on the game itself and not kind of getting caught up. Um, I suppose what I mean getting caught up is that not focusing enough on the game itself at half three. Look, as in to say, you're not in control of anything until you actually get on the field yourself, yeah. and that's when you have to kind of, I suppose take over. Nicky, there was a, an interesting comment I remember from Jim McGuinness last year ahead of the after they'd won their semi-final and he was asked about how crazy the county's going to go and the effect that might have and he said look, the, the, the county deserves to go crazy and go as mad as they want. We're going to stay focused and actually play the game which I kind of enjoyed because some counties it seems like now and Limerick's experience might uh, put the you know, put the mockers on them a little bit the next time they go into a big game and that everyone got really excited and there was a big letdown there. Should you be should you allow is it possible for a county to go absolutely crazy and the 15 or the 30 players to focus and actually do the job on the pitch oh, I, I think it absolutely is yeah and I, I'd agree totally with Derek in, in you know that's what that's what players want that's what you want you want the county uh, enjoying the build up to the to the All-Ireland final now like you, you have to control it as well and you actually have to you know sorry control the players and, and ensure that at half past three that they're actually playing, that they're just not caught up in the hype themselves, and like I, ultimately, the manager's job is to get the, the players on the day playing for playing to their potential, or possibly a bit a bit better than it. And that's that's the that's the real trick. But they have to they have to be at least a hundred percent and try to get them at hundred and ten is is the trick, and then they they, they definitely get to a hundred. But um, you know, so I, like I can remember in. Going to the Ireland final in '88, in, um, in in from a tip perspective, and, and that was the first one for 17 years. And certainly for a lot of the players that passed, that played that day, they felt that the, the match passed them by, and that's that's the that's the danger. And you know, it would be it would be wrong to to say that the hype cost Limerick the match. You know, they just didn't play. But at the same time, you know, because and then that would take from player who are you know just by far the better hurlers, but. I'd say if you went to the Limerick players and, and asked them did they play, you know, sure very few of them played anywhere near their 
the 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 potential or what they had shown, you know, in against Tipperary and against Cork. So, you know, that 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 to me is a disappointment. I never mind if I'm if I'm with a team or if I'm playing and, and you're beaten fair and square, fine. You just if you play your best, but if you, if you don't play your best, then you have you have regrets. And uh, you know, I I didn't actually. Uh, Realised that there was such hype in Limerick, and uh, until I was talking to uh, people on, on Saturday, mm-hmm. and they said it was you know people who were living in Limerick, and they said it was just gone crazy down there, and and you know that um, maybe you know may, maybe just it, it got him. I think it definitely got him a bit. Now how, how much it impacted is is the question, and uh, you know I think you have to prepare a team for that, and uh, you know I, I after my experiences in '88, I was always very conscious of that. Either playing afterwards in an Ireland finals or uh, preparing a team for an Ireland final. That's interesting, and maybe Limerick will learn from whatever has gone wrong this time. I guess there would be an assumption. I would assume, Derek, that because Kilkenny qualify for so many All Ireland finals, that they don't face this issue in the same way. Is that a, an incorrect assumption? I think so. It's probably um, going back to experience and what Nicky spoke there. Just on that, uh, you know, Henry Shefflin's a player who's been up in Crow Park a few times, and I know back. In his early days, he would have one or two bad days and came back a stronger player. Mm. I like to think that Declan Hanning, Hanning, the same thing will happen to him as well because he's a player with huge ability. Um, for ourselves, uh, Kilkenny, every year was different. Um, you know, we got back in 06, was, there was a huge build-up because the fact that Cork were going for three in a row, we were underdogs. So every year brought its own... Um, yeah, the, the, I suppose the, the five in a row is the one that jumps yeah. out that people maybe thought that in 2010 that... It became a circus in Kilkenny, maybe for the first time ever, that this drive for five or whatever, yeah. and that maybe it affected the players in some way. In some way, Derek then. used to call it the drive for five <laughs> yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he had it across his car, car windscreen. Yeah, yeah, alongside my flag. And yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, well, you say that about the five in a row. The the same hype was there for three in a row because it, it was often um, said to us that you know Kilkenny have never done a three in a row as well, yeah. and uh, I think it was done once. We got a walkover or something um, many years ago, but so and then there was the four in a row, which was something that wasn't achieved. Um, obviously, the five in a row, the fact that we had so many injuries, um, we probably extra people come to training um, to have a look and see who was fit, who was not fit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my memory of that uh, is coming into the dressing room before. Um, you know, one or two injuries myself uh, to see the physios before and after after training games, and it was like a war zone in there. That was my that was my memory. We just had so many injuries, and we had a round of club matches after the All Ireland semi final, and it was just it was manic from the point of view that we had so many players rushing to get back in the space of a couple of weeks. But looking back in the twenty ten All Ireland, um, honestly, hype didn't affect our performance. No, no question. I actually thought we played quite well on the day. Um, we had a few injuries. Brian Hogan was missing centre back, huge loss to us, and obviously Henry um, having to go off after twenty minutes. But besides all the injuries, um, I think if you look, <clears throat> excuse me, on Tipperary's performances over the last few years, that was probably their best performance over seventy minutes. They were outstanding on the day. They were that bit sharper to the ball and everything else, and took their took their goal chances when they got them. And ultimately, that was a difference. And really, there was no complaints with Kenny afterwards yeah. as regards hype. I, uh, that wasn't. Is it an excuse then used by teams sometimes to say that oh, you know, the hype got to us or whatever? Because it's actually refreshing to hear a guy say, well, there was loads of hype, but it didn't actually it didn't actually affect us really one way or the other, which is what you've just said. You yeah. Know? Um, well, I think I think even I, I think I read a, a quote from Donald Gray, the Limerick captain, the other day, and he said it wasn't got, it wasn't anything got to do with hype why mm. they lost the game and. You know, I think it was a fair comment. Um, to to 
look over at the 15 players and say for each and every one of them the hype didn't get to him or the occasion didn't get to him probably would be wrong it yeah. might have got to one or two players but overall in the context of the whole game Clare by far the better team you have to give them credit for the work rate they had right across the field from the word go and their touch and they're so comfortable on the ball and you have to say they're so like Davy Fitz has done an unbelievable job there their, their skill levels are so high he's got them playing to a game that suits them and he's stuck with over the last two years and when people said look this is not going to work it was kind of more like a containment job that maybe he was looking at playing Kilkenny and a few of these teams I'm not going to be able to match him up 15 and 15 um, but the system that they're playing now really suits their strengths and uh, I think they're going to be a hard team to beat now Nicky just on a related topic which is Declan Hannan's free taking uh, Derek made the point that he almost maybe because he was struggling so badly he was trying maybe a little too hard to make things happen around the field and it was just a bad day for him but when things are going wrong for a free taker like that is there a direct correlation then between uh, the team around him underperforming do the heads start dropping a little bit when you're working really hard and your free taker is missing yeah what I think that I didn't get is just there's two there's two parts to it really first of all the free taker is effectively he's he's damaging himself anyway by missing the freeze but there is a there is a greater impact around the place as well, and you know everyone everyone presses a bit harder, and you know if you're pressing, it's not always working, and you know just because you're pushing at it, you know you're you're rushing it, and you know people become anxious, and the touch becomes worse, and that's a, that's effectively what happened in Nimrick's case. Like the freeze, really, really, they, they, they were spooked anyway, possibly, or maybe maybe they weren't, but it looked like they were spooked, and they, they had. A, their touch was poor. They were they were slow going to the ball. They were behind the ball, and uh, they just didn't play. They didn't go to the ball with any, uh, you know, any kind of just sense of like this is it. Let's go for it. Like they were they were just they were holding back. I felt, and you know, maybe that's the five weeks as well. You see, that's it is it is it certainly you know I th- I thought it wasn't as obvious with Dublin, but they didn't they didn't challenge the ball the previous Sunday as hard as they did against uh, Galway in the early stages, and they let Cork dictate it. But like you know, all around Declan Hannan, you know everyone else got got as anxious and and more anxious, and their touch, you know, uh, their touch got worse. Like they they made crucial mistakes when they had even if when they had the ball, you know there were several instances where they slipped and fell themselves, and then you know they gave when they hand passed the ball, they didn't hand pass it well, you know. So their execution all over the place was was poor, and they just they they weren't anywhere near matching the um, the hurling of, of player like so. Yeah. You know, like you could see, you could blame lots of things. I mean, a match a match is never just about one thing, really. But there were there were lots of things. But certainly, I would have thought the free taking didn't help them. And you know, you could argue that you know, but by having Declan Hannan taken freeze, I mean Declan Hannan has missed. You know, like this this year, if you go back to um, the league final against Dublin, I was at it in Torles. I mean, they had they had a lot. They had trouble with freeze that day. Conor Ellis started on him. Then Declan Hannan went on him and. You know, they were neither of them were, were good early on, and uh, you know eventually Shane Dowling took him coming on against Tipperary, starting off. Hannah missed a few frees, you know. So it's it's not been this, this 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 that didn't just come out of the blue, you know. That was there was a possibility that free taking was going to be a difficulty. I thought for Limerick. Yeah, just a word on Claire, Derek. You mentioned there how good they were, and I know 
Davy Fitzgerald, there have been criticisms, or certainly there are observations that he really drills a team and maybe he overcoaches them. That has been levelled at him before. I think the criticisms are maybe falling away a little bit the more success that he has. I have to say, they were a brilliant team to watch. They were so exciting in just in the way they played and the skills that they showed. Are you looking forward to the All-Ireland Final? I know it's novel. Kilkenny aren't there, Tip aren't there. But just in terms of actually the way the two teams play the game should be good fun. Absolutely. And the fact that they've played each other already adds to it. Um, yeah, like Jimmy Barry, you can be sure, was, is looking at the, the clear game plan, how they set up Patrick Donnellan just sitting in front of um, the full forward line. And he has the role down to a tee. Um, the one goal chance, clear goal chance Limerick got on Sunday, Graham Mulcahy, you know, Patrick Donnellan was really, he's tracking back that stop the goal. And that could have been the difference. That could have, that could have been the catalyst yeah. for uh, Limerick at that stage. So um, I'm sure Jim Barry's looking at that. Patrick Horgan's playing full forward. He can be sure Claire, like looking at that again to maybe stop his influence on the game. So um, two kind of similar teams, really mobile teams, really comfortable on the ball. Their their touch, their stick passes today have been excellent. So it's really set up for it. And um, you can be sure Cork are looking, both are looking at the game plans and seeing which way. I personally myself, I don't think both of them will deviate too much from how they've played so far this year. I think they'll just go at it and. Uh, made the best team win. I don't see um I don't see too much in it. I think the last day you look at Clare against Cork, it was probably Clare kinda of missing those opportunities that they had in the first half. They look at that again. Same thing could happen again, you know, in a couple of weeks' time. It depends on who hits the ground running and um, who, I suppose, handles the occasion and who's on form on the day. Yeah, and two teams who will both very much believe that they're gonna win, I would say, Nicky. Oh yeah, you mean sure you as Derek says there's gonna be nothing in it. I mean they've played four or five times already this year the league final was a draw and the championship or the league relegation playoff that was a draw went to extra time and you know other than for the missed goals starting off the last day Clare were, were right in the game in, in, in the Gaelic ground so yeah no there's nothing between them and they're very similar in, in style and in age profile um, you know really both very young player, very young teams I, I think both have improved significantly actually since the since the first day in, in Limerick you know Clare like they, they didn't miss much last Sunday, which was you know unusual for them. Now they didn't create a whole lot of goal chances, but they they like they, their conversion rate was much higher, and they didn't make the same mistakes that they'd making in defence. And you know their their style has evolved. Like they're not just playing it as short as they were, and you know there seems to be they seem to be taking more responsibility on the feet on the field. So I think they are certainly improved, and you couldn't you couldn't argue that Cork haven't improved either. You know they're their defence is much more solid than it was in the first couple of minutes against um against uh, Cork in or sorry against Clare in Limerick and um you know their 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 forwards are dangerous as well. Similar similar to um you know, similar to the Clare lads and you have Brian Murphy coming back who did such a great job on um on Tony Kelly the last day in, in Limerick. So it's like it's it's set up now for a very it's very hard to call actually to be honest. I I it'll be uh so it, uh, you'll have you'll people will be split as to who is going to win it. Both will believe they can win it, and uh, I'd say it'll, it'll be very close and, uh, and a good game. Yeah. Derek Ling, thanks very much for coming into us, and Nicky English, thank you very much as well. I guess the one point about the freeze that we didn't really get to there was just that it it doesn't just affect a team; it also affects how a game goes. Because if you're in the opposition side, you think, well, we can definitely fail 60, 70 mm. meters out. They're not going to score these frees. I'm not saying Clare were in any way dirty or cynical, particularly the other day, but in general, that's something that can happen. Ushi McConville was on talking about free-taking with us earlier yeah. on this year. Do you remember that chat? Yeah, and he, he basically said that if he was stuck in corner forward, hadn't got a ball, beaten to the first couple of balls by the cornerback, 
and after 15 minutes they get their he's, he hasn't touched the ball in this first 15 minutes Armagh get a free Ushin says right I'm in the game now walks up knocks it over the bar and by through no good play of his own the cornerback is now thinking right okay he's he's on the board now he's got a score now I think you kind of have to be Ushin McConville or someone of a similarly confident sort of mindset to say right I've got a ball in my hand now 40 yards out this is my time to shine as opposed to I haven't even touched the shagging thing and now I have to kick this over the bar you know I think that's you know it, it comes comes down very much to, to personal choice but it is it is a chance for you to get your top scorer on the ball uh, in a game and to get him off the mark and you know it, it can obviously go both ways and it went a horrible way for Declan Hannon uh, the last day but it, it you know you, you often see the free taker hits his first three points of play, then suddenly gets a, a chance from play and he doesn't have to think about it over it goes mm. and he's in he's in the game then. That's about it from this show for today. We have got second captains football coming up a little bit later on. Drop your emails into us, second captains at irishtimes.com. That's the email address we're on there. Second captains at irishtimes.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at second captains, Facebook.com forward slash forward slash second captains. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Owen. Damn it, I was holding it together for most of the show. (laughs) Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Thanks Thanks for listening. We'll chat to you later. Which phone is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 